What I would like for you to do is I would like for your tables to take up a discussion just briefly of the questions that are in the back here, one through seven. If people are sincere in their religious worship, does God accept sincerity as acceptable worship or must there be something more? What grave danger are we facing today as a country, especially as we reflect upon this text? Is this danger also challenging Christianity? Does, our, does it challenge our congregation here at Advent? Do we teach and believe God's truth? What is the basis for our confidence and certainty? Is there anything that we are tempted to rely upon that would be a false basis of confidence? And for Christians, what good comes out of trials and tribulations? In what ways are church and state bound to each other? In what way do Christians swear allegiance to our Lord? And how do we renew those vows? And in what ways does God test us today? And what kind of worshipful praise should we offer him to offer to him in response? Let's just take about, I don't know, five, six, seven, ten minutes at the most and just talk among ourselves at our table in response to those questions. Okay. It's all right. We will um, we'll, uh, uh, launch into our, our little study today. Thank you very much for taking the time to, um, to speak to these answers. Okay. Let's start with, um, let's start with uh, reading here. I'm going to read 19, verse 1. An oracle concerning Egypt. Now, remember, of course, that when God's Word speaks an oracle, when it speaks a prophecy, if you will, it is not just saying, uh, kind of like uh, we might say, I think this will happen or I see that this might happen. It actually is determining that it will happen. Um, like we said last time, um, the Pharaoh in, um, in that, uh, that movie about Israel in the wilderness, uh, they, when he says, let it be written, let it be done, that's exactly what it is that it meant to write this, these words, to write them down, is to make them also happen. So, an oracle concerning Egypt, see the Lord rides on a swift cloud, and is coming to Egypt, the idols of Egypt tremble before him, and the hearts of the Egyptians melt within them. Luther says, because of images and idolatry, human thinking is perverted. It fashions a god for itself and does so according to its own whim and the suggestion of Satan. A knowledge of God is implanted in all men, and therefore they think that God is to be worshipped. In this they certainly make no mistake, but they do err in the manner of their worship if they worship him not simply according to his word and will, but rather according to their own ideas. And this, of course, is uh, the reason for why people oftentimes will say, well, why is it that, that there are so many different religions in the world? And our answer is because all forms of idolatry worship God according to men's own ideas. And so therefore there are as many religions as there are people. Because everybody will shape their religion based upon their own ideas. But uh, he, he's saying something more here. When you have an idol 
the idol literally becomes for you something that blocks or blinds you to the truth. And idolatry is not that you merely have a religion and there's some definition of God or whatever it might be, Hinduism or Buddhism. Idolatry today has become the most predominant religion of all, perhaps even in the world today, is what we used to describe as uh, secular humanism. It's a, it's a kind of a washed-out view that I guess God is just kind of an inanimate Star Wars force and that therefore we can do, we can define our own morality. Um, somebody was saying last night that 60% of that, air, that San Francisco area where my son lives, 60% has absolutely no religious association or identification at all, over 60%. But that's the, that's the beginning of the tidal wave, and that's pressing on us too. Where is this secular humanism? My son had mentioned that uh, even to discuss Christianity is something which is viewed as cultic. That there is very, very, very little understanding whatsoever of religion. I mean, it's it's like it's like if you talk about Christ, they they don't they, they see you as a like we might say maybe like a fanatic, like a Jehovah's Witness or something. I I. The, the extent of secularism and what it can do, um, perhaps I, I'm sure I have told you this story before, but Sylvia and I on our honeymoon were over in Sevilla. And Sevilla has this magnificent cathedral in the middle of Sevilla. And the hotel that we were staying in, there was a Jewish couple that was sitting next to us. They're from Israel. And um, he turned to me and he said, we went into the cathedral and these people were going up and they were getting something in their mouth and they were taking something up there from this man who was dressed in the, these beautiful clothes and um, I thought, hey, I got a chance to be able to explain to them what the Lord's Supper is, right? So I, a smarty pants seminarian student here, um, I said, uh, well, uh, like for instance, the Passover dinner, the Passover meal, when the Jews celebrated the Passover and I started going into this and they started looking at me in, with the most blank eyes and, and I said, you know the Passover? And they said, no, what's the Passover? <laughs> they lived in Israel and they were secular Jews and they didn't even know what the Passover was. Watch out. Yeah, it like a language, theology like a language, there has to be some sort of base knowledge in order to be able to even get to first base. And that's becoming worse and worse. The idols that we make actually become for us our snare. And yeah, we're not so ignorant that we bow down to a piece of metal that's sitting on the shelf. But we do bow down to ourselves and we do bow down to the new idols that we build within our television screen. Yeah, whether it be sports or whether it be movie stars who have now become the great commentator on politics in our country. So, 
Uh, Luther says that a knowledge of God is implanted in all men. There's a certain understanding that we need to be able to know who this God is. The Egyptians, you know, there is a belief that in Egypt there was a time in which Egypt became monotheistic. And um, this, uh, this religion was highly persecuted uh, in Egypt. Uh, it was tied to one of their rulers, and uh, it was heavily persecuted, and Im immediately after he died, they reverted back to their polytheism. But uh, probably the influence of Judaism and the idea that there is but one God. Well, that's in men. But how do you approach this one God? How do you know this one God? And for us, uh, the scriptures, God has revealed to us that it's in his, the face of his son, Jesus our Lord, that we come to actually know who our God is. Okay. Um, 19, one, the hearts of the Egyptians will melt. This is a very important subject for us today. Disunity, Luther says, is the beginning of a kingdom's overthrow, as read in Luke eleven seventeen. This results from the collapse of confidence in religion, and for and then some urge this, others urge against it. When God is about to fight against men, he first takes their heart away. He deprives them of courage and daring. He causes them to disagree among themselves. He undermines their every counsel. Um, as I mentioned in worship service this morning, I think we are, we are seeing a very, very sad situation in our country right now. And it isn't just the difference of opinions, right? It is the fact that when we elect a candidate, it is actually, um, the, the word is, if you, in talking to people who are in the know, who have been in Washington, that there is really a, going to be an attempt to subvert uh, the presidency of President Trump. And um, as a person who will not tell you how I voted, but I will tell you that I had a real, uh, there are a good number of people in our country who probably walked into the voting booth and had still not made up their mind about who it is that they were going to vote for because this is not exactly what you would call an exemplary man. But at the same time, what are we required to do according to the fourth commandment? We're required to pray for those who are in authority and we're still to recognize something of the hand of God in the person who does get elected. And even, um, even though the imperfection of the person makes us question the, 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 the issue of our division uh, in this country and the subversion um, is, a, is a dangerous one because we're not going to, as a country, prosper. We're only going to get weaker. But if we back up just a little bit, there's also a great concern about, um, I guess you might call it gender identification. But, um, you know, what, what was it that Garrison Keillor said uh, about Minnesotans? He said, this is a, where every, all the women are strong and all the men are good looking and all the children are above average. He didn't say all the men are strong. He just said all the women are strong. But the, there's been a lot of discussion about Disney as well, that 
males, male role models now are becoming uh, effeminate, that, uh, that the idea that, that men are uh, supposed to be men, and what does that mean? And women are supposed to be women, what does that mean? We don't know, because a lot of our roles as men and women today have become very blurred. And um, I saw on Facebook somebody had a picture of an altar where two people are getting married, and then there's another picture of a bed. And they said the bed was, this is where it is that boys take women. And the other one said, this is where it is that men take women. Men take women to the altar. Boys take women to bed. And when you have a culture that is uh, more into the uh, bed stuff, what you get is not men. You get an effeminate culture that is actually very weakened. And Luther says this too becomes a part of, I guess you might call it God's punishment upon a culture. No longer do you have people who have courage who are able to stand up and face the, the, the danger. Uh, you, what you get is you get people who actually are afraid. 19 verse 8. Uh, you want to read it? Uh, you guys want to read it? Uh, on your marks, get set. The fishermen will groan and lament. All who cast hooks into the Nile, those who throw nets on the water will pine away. Luther says, the workers in combined flax, um, fishermen, now the use we are to make of a prophecy of this kind, which is made against all the nations encircling Jerusalem, is this, that we may learn that our enemies will not escape punishment, that God is the avenger of the godly, and that none of the ungodly are more powerful than God. We can, we can look around ourselves and we can see that we have terrorists and all kinds of dangerous things that are probably going to be happening, but as godly people, we have to remember that our enemies are going to be punished by God in one way or another. Um, 19 verse 11. Uh, yeah, you guys can read too. The officials of Zoan are nothing but fools. The wise counselors of Pharaoh give senseless advice. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am one of the wise men, a disciple of the ancient kings? It's kind of interesting here. Um, Isaiah taunts them thus, since you are so very wise and of so ancient a race, why do you not understand how to escape this danger? This is the way of a doomed empire. It is hardened and puffed up, and the more the evil threatens, the prouder and more inflexible it becomes, just as the impenitent do not fear God and do not hear the voice of the Lord. Today, and this is in Luther's day, the papists boast of wisdom and antiquity. These two harden the minds and the prophets pursue and reprove this especially. Um, in the ancient world, you have to um, understand sometimes the mind of the ancients, but I think it is present today somewhat as well. It was believed that the true culture, the true religion, was tied to whoever it is could claim that they had the most ancient culture. 
it was even language-wise. Superior languages are related to the languages that are the oldest languages that have gone the most unchanged over time. And of course, Egypt, uh, if you remember Alexander the Great, what he built in Alexandria, it wasn't something that, that he built and acquired all these books. It was a library. The library of Alexander the Great was actually a library that incorporated the books that had actually been contained by the Egyptians for thousands of years. Now, this library was so extensive. When the Muslims conquered Egypt, they went in and said, they said, well, only one book is necessary. All other books are unnecessary. And so, therefore, they took the ancient books that were there in that library and they used them for fire to heat the waters for the baths of Alexandria for over a year. They just used them to heat water. Well, we, know th we know that the Egyptians were seen as the keepers, if you will, of ancient history. You want, everybody wonders, wh where, where did Moses get the first five books of the Bible? How did he know all this stuff? I have no doubt that, no, that Moses, being brought up in, in Pharaoh's household, had full access to ancient documents that very likely documented the entire history of the world going all the way back to Adam. Now, if the Egyptians could, kind of like with genealogy, if you can claim through your genealogy that you go all the way back like this, that puts you in a position where you supposedly are supposed to be wiser than anybody else. And the Egyptians had this arrogance that they had this wisdom and maybe they knew even more than we might think if you recall that Pharaoh's magicians duplicated three of the miracles which Moses performed in front of Pharaoh. Maybe their knowledge was even more extensive than we might imagine when it came down to ancient secrets. But they got this idea that they were therefore almost invincible. Do we, as a country, think that because of our technology that we are invincible? Have we maybe considered ourselves to be, you know, we're the country, the, the what's happening country? We're the Rome that has been transported to this world where we can't be invaded. You know, Russia is not going to be able to get to us. Mexico would never have the power to be able to invade us. Canada doesn't care. Um, do, we, do, we have a, do we have a sense of invincibility? And, and Luther says here, um, yeah, this um, foolishness. Um, 19 verse 13, we're going to jump a little bit further. Um, the officials of Zoan have become fools. The leaders of Memphis are deceived. The cornerstones of her people have led Egypt astray. You recognize that word, cornerstones? The cornerstone of the people. He says, corners denote heads, princes and kings. Our cornerstone is, remember the song that we sing, Christ is our cornerstone. On him alone we build. Ephesians 2.20, Christ is our cornerstone. The, the, um, in the ancient 
uh, world of construction, your cornerstone was what determined your lines, both directions for how you were going to build your house. And he's saying, the people who are supposed to be your leaders have absolutely become deceived. You've got a bad, bad, bad cornerstone. Um, who is leading? Who is leading our country today? Who's, who is, who's, I guess you might say, the authorities that seem to shape our minds about things being right and wrong? Say it louder. The media, probably, and and they're and they're. Have you ever considered whether or not the media by is really all that smart? Um, well, maybe, maybe, maybe not, depending upon who they might talk to. But all right, nineteen verse fourteen. If you want to read it with me. The Lord has poured into them a spirit of dizziness. They make Egypt stagger in all that she does as a drunkard staggers around his vomit. Um, well, you know, you've got to kind of think about that for a little while. 1914, the Lord has mingled her with a spirit of confusion. Luther says, in time of peace, the ungodly are very sure of the, of the spirit, their spirit and of wisdom. But in trials, they do not stand fast. They turn from this to that. Where there are many divergent recommendations, there is sure disaster. But where many recommendations are in harmony, there is safety. I love this quote. A cart is never drawn well by unmatched oxen. He is, um, he is uh, you know, we, we know that we have something to do with the confusion of our culture, but uh, sometimes this is also a punishment from God. The drunken man, every trial apart from the word of God makes a man drunk, that is, uncertain and desperate so that he does not know where he is going. The godly have learned that the scourge is a reward of the Lord and that, will, that it will turn out for their benefit. They know that it is the Lord's good will that they be put to the test and not be destroyed. The ungodly, staggering as they do, even vomit. Their counsels are sheer vomit and filth, food for pigs. Now, um, I imagine that very few people here have ever gone through trials in their life. I mean, your, your lives are just easy peasy, aren't they? I mean, that, that you know, we, we see trials as things that we don't, and it's okay for us to pray that we not, might, might not have trials in our life. But it is through trials that we come to recognize that there's something inside of us that God has put there. And when the world um, has trials, it finds itself that it does not have the courage or the strength to be able to handle it. And Christians do discover within themselves the strength to be able to handle this. And so we will look at a trial as a very, in a very different way that they do. Now, not, 
yeah, in the middle of it all, we're sometimes crying out to God, why in the world did you do this? You know, where are you? But in the end, we look back too and we say, hey, look, this is what it is that God is doing. My faith is grabbing ever more deeply onto God's word and promise. The scriptures are more important to me than anything else. These words now speak to my soul and give me comfort, whereas the world's words don't give me comfort at all. So um, he, he, what Luther is driving at here is that hmm, yeah, the, the dog has returned to its vomit. Have you ever had a dog that did that? I caught my dog the other day eating her poop. I threw up just thinking about it. <laughs> oh, it's just, whew. Um. Okay, uh, on a higher note, um, in chapter, uh, chapter 19, verse 15, there is nothing Egypt can do, head or tail, palm branch or reed. Luther says, the prophet who speaks a lie is a tale. You find this in the book of Revelation, that false doctrine is actually um, viewed like that of the sting of a scorpion. You know, the, it's the power of the scorpion is in its tail. And when it strikes you, it obviously kills you. False doctrine. This is not, this is again today, if we talk about the changes that are taking place in our world today. False, I, I think, I think, uh, maybe I, I was wrong. Um, I think when I was raised, I was raised to understand that there was this thing called false doctrine. If you deny the real presence of Lord's Supper, is that false doctrine? If you deny regen the regenerative powers of baptism for children, for infants, is that false doctrine? If you believe that you are saved 99% by the kindness and the grace of God, but 1% by your own decision, is that false doctrine? What does that do? It is the tail of the scorpion that stings you, and it can destroy your faith if you don't watch out. Now, it's not to say that somehow there has to be, there, that your life is always made up. You can only be saved by having absolutely pure doctrine. But rather, pure doctrine is actually the stuff that delivers the gospel. And it makes the gospel known to our hearts and to our minds. It's the means through which the Holy Spirit works. And so, when God punishes a people, when there is judgment that comes down from heaven against the people, God takes away the pure doctrine, and he lets the doctrines of men sting the people. Now you say, that's why is that a, a judgment? Doesn't God want all people to be saved? But he does not want his word to be trampled. He doesn't want his word to be despised. So uh, Egypt is going to face some judgment. But there is good news for Egypt. 19 verse 17, if we uh, want to read it, uh, you guys. And the land of Judah will bring terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom Judah is mentioned will be terrified. 
because of what the Lord Almighty is planning against them. 1917, they will fear because of the purpose of the Lord. So it happens, Luther says, with the word that it is not believed but despised when it is proclaimed, but it is feared the more when it is fulfilled. So um, we, we should expect that in the preaching of the word that, that this is something that doesn't sit well with people, doesn't sit well with men, but when it actually has its effect on them, they respect it all the more. 1918, um, I'll read it. In that day, the five cities in Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord Almighty. One of them will be called the City of Destruction, or uh, some, in some texts they say the City of the Sun, Heliopolis. Um, Luther says, and uh, they will swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. Quote, to vow and to swear are Hebrew ways of speaking and mean, and mean to bind oneself to God and have him as one's God and worship him. I think, um, I think this idea that, you know, we've all, we, today we will say, I gave him my word. You give somebody your word, does that bind you? even when you, it ends up becoming something that costs you something? Did, did, you, um, did you swear at all when you got a job that you would be faithful to the company that you were working for? Is there any kind of a, you have like a working document or something that you say, I signed this and maybe after you leave, but we don't say that. Um, yeah. In the military, it's very you have to swear an oath to to do what to the Constitution. It's kind of an oath on top of an oath, which is built. I mean, theoretically, it's built into our citizenship, right? But especially, um, well, when you became Lutherans, whether you knew it when you were a little kid in your baptism, or whether or not you became a member here and joined the church through baptism and confirmation here, you swore an oath. And that oath was that you belong to Christ and that whatever Christ wants from you, you will do even when it is something that causes you hurt or harm. So the question might be, are there times in which your vow as a Christian stands in conflict with the world in which we're living. Uh, what happens when you are part of a government, when you are a, a citizen of a country that uh, practices abortion and legalizes abortion? We all say, well, yeah, well, you know. Well, guess what, folks? Murder. If there were Jews over in Germany, which, by the way, Armin Wenz, who is the pastor who is in Halle, in our Selk church. German court just ruled there was a Jewish synagogue that was torched over in Germany. And instead of uh, labeling this as a crime, the court labeled it as a protest against Israel. And Armin Wenz says, 
Have we forgotten what we did? Yeah. Do we as Christians at some point engage in civil disobedience because something is contrary to the vows of our own, not just humanity, but even to the vows of our own constitution? At what point uh, do we as Lutherans say that our vows, you know, we, we had, we've had some controversies in our Lutheran church before. If you are a member of a church body that teaches false doctrine, is it something that you have to protest against? Are you and I bound as Christians to worship faithfully on the day of worship? Or are we here to just kind of arbitrarily come any time that it feels we feel like it? Paul says, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your bodies. That what we do with our hands, with our eyes, with our minds, with our hearts, these are all things that are bound, our vows to God have bound to us as though actually the phrase, we were, I tell the confirmation kids, you know, you, you have sometimes seen um, people who are standing like this in front of like a ruler. If you went like this, you were promising to a ruler that you would become that ruler's servant. The word was used in, in, the, in Europe. The, you were the Lord's men. You belonged to that Lord. And if he took his hands like this and clasped your hands, that meant that he was accepting you as that. Are we, have we done this to Christ and therefore is his will superior to our will? And that's the challenge here. That Luther here speaks about these vows. This is the Hebrew way of speaking. And he goes on to say, this is what it means to worship, to confess the Lord, rightly to use his name namely for the confirmation of the truth as is done by an oath and by calling upon him through faith in his promises and his truth. So that's a part of our allegiance. All right. Um, I'm going to jump down here to um, 1921. Let's uh, read that. Uh, everybody together. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and in that day they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They will make vows to the Lord and keep them. Um, in, in, in the previous quote from verse 19, Luther says, this is a prophecy that has to do with the New Testament, that the gospel is going to be coming to Egypt and that this wonderful gospel is going to be received by some, not by all, but um, the, um, uh, he says they, they will cry to the Lord. He says, where the doctrine is sound, there is prayer in the spirit of prayers. And where the word of grace is, there follows cross and affliction. Therefore, the Egyptians will cry. That is, they will be true Christians and will have the word of grace and the work of grace that is prayer. Um, you probably have heard about the bombing of Christian churches in Egypt today. Yeah, the minute that you have God's word, anticipate that there's going to be 
persecution and affliction. Uh, where is ours? Where is ours? Well, 1921, here comes the big one. Um, in verse 21, we read it. All right. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your having done that. Um, I'll read it. In any conflict, the superior position of Scripture must always be kept in mind. And we're, this is, by the way, just a for Luther, the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God was the authority in all things. And we know how that view of Scripture is something that we've inherited today. The word once given by the Lord must be held fast if trial should be overcome and the situation would appear to be otherwise. No, Moses says, that the Lord your God is testing you. Therefore, God wants us to abide by his prior word. When, therefore, it is said here that the Egyptians would speak the language of Canaan, swear by the Lord, cry to the Lord, and pray and do everything that is characteristic of Christians, it means that those sacrifices and gifts will be sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving and not ceremonies of the Lord for the purpose of obtaining righteousness. For otherwise, Christ would have died in vain and would be preached in vain. Now you say, what, what is Luther driving at there? Um, in this day, the Roman Catholic Church was maintaining that by doing these rites and ceremonies and these various things that they would do in the worship, that they were getting something from God for this. In a sense, it was meritorious. They were earning, if you will, grace that would help them along this road to salvation. Grace would be like, like getting, you know, you get, you get a, a coin, like Monopoly. You get to collect $200 uh, every time you pass go. But with that, you get to buy things but ultimately you don't necessarily win the game and you won't know if you won the game until heaven itself or purgatory or hell. And so, therefore, he's saying these Egyptians were not re receiving a promise that they could earn their salvation. They're receiving a promise that this was God's grace that would be given to them. And you can see kind of the Reformation struggle of Luther in his interpretation. Vows are the giving of thanks and praise, faith in clinging to Christ and telling his wonderful works. The vows of the New Testament are to commit oneself to Christ, to worship him by faith, praise, and confession. For God is not worshipped except by faith. All right. If people are sincere in their religious worship, does God accept sincerity as acceptable worship or must there be something more? Anybody want to speak to that? You guys didn't do your homework? <laughs> yes. I say, I'm sorry. Yeah, you can be very sincerely wrong, can't you? And yet, I think the, the question is driving at how it is that most people judge religion. That, you know, as long as you're sincere, that's what's important. Right? And that's not what it is that this text is asking for. It's asking for something more. What must we be bringing? Vows, vows, and vows that are made not just to any old God, but to this true God who is revealed to us in the pure word. Um, 
I don't know if that is, makes sense. What grave danger are we facing as a country, especially as we reflect upon this text? What are your thoughts about that? Monty Weimer? I'm going to start calling on you people. That's it. Okay. The idea that truth is just relative to the person themselves and whatever they want to believe is it's up to them. Anything else? Our country? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the word oftentimes is used as tolerance, right? That we must be tolerant of everything and everybody and accept everything, especially when we are not accepting of it. We're supposed to accept it. Anything else? Apathy. Uh, um, a lot of times we think that there's nothing we can do, right? So, um, yeah, there is. But there's, there's, a, there's a kind of a general spirit of just let things be and they'll eventually correct themselves, right? Okay. Yeah, do you, do you think that... Um, do you think that we in any way are just kind of a go along, get along kind of people, or are we struggling against our culture? Are we fighting against the world, the devil, our own flesh? You, know, you talk about apathy, maybe we don't see it. But, yeah. What about, um, is this danger challenging us in Christianity? You would say so, yes. He, uh, uh, he says it's very difficult to be able to stand up and be known as a Christian. We had, uh, had dinner with some people last night that were saying this individual goes to Washington, D.C., and she's involved in a, in a company there in Washington, D.C. that's very much, I guess you might say, um, politically driven. She cannot open up her mouth and say what she believes as a Christian without fear of reprisal, maybe even losing her job. But Christianity within our own, look at the differences, look at the division, look at what Christ, where some of these other denominations, where are they going with this new morality? Where are they getting that? It goes all the way back to those debates and those trials that we had in our own church body over the inspiration of the scriptures. And We've had this, you know, this, this is probably before some of you were even born. Missouri Synod had a ripped apart controversy over what? Over whether or not the Bible is the Word of God. And that led to the radical departure. The train took off in a different direction with many of all these other denominations that are mainline denominations. And they're shrinking. And we're shrinking. And the world is becoming more secular as a result. So there's a, there's a challenge out there. And I would say 
does it challenge our congregation here at Advent? You know, it just grieves you, grieves you when you see a third of your congregation on any given Sunday. Excuse me, it grieves me. It does. It grieves me. And, and, it's, and it has to do with, I think sometimes we, we parallel our country's attitude and spirit parallels itself with Christians too, where we say, what difference does it make if we're here? What difference does our worship make? Is it possible actually that our worship, our prayers have something to do with the fate and the destiny of our country? If we were the only church that was actually worshiping with the pure name of God, would it make a difference? And if we think not, remember the story of Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah? You remember that Abraham pleads for Sodom and Gomorrah? If there are 75 righteous people, okay, I won't destroy it. If there are 50, I won't destroy it. If there are 30, I won't destroy it. If there are 15, I won't destroy it. He gets there, and there are just a couple of people, and he has to destroy it. Uh, we are God's people, and by our worship, we actually preserve and uphold our country. As insignificant as it might seem, you are the people who are providing the leaven that is keeping the loaf leavened. So, do we teach and believe God's truth? We hope so. What is the basis for our confidence and our certainty? What makes you think that we are actually people who, by our confession, believe the right things? Everybody here who is a Lutheran, please raise their hand. You say, what does that mean? What does that mean? Does it possibly dawn on people that Lutheranism was born out of blood-bought controversy? That these people actually had their lives on the, at stake? Does it possibly dawn upon people that the theology that we have been receiving in our Lutheran confessions was not a theology that came out of a bunch of people sitting around drinking beer, having a good time, smoking their pipes, and saying like Harvard professors, what can we speak about next? That possibly these were people whose lives were going to be taken if they confessed this truth? That they had armies that were getting ready to kill them and put them to death? Well, all good theology comes out of pain and suffering. Um, so, yeah, but what gives us a certainty that what... Do we believe... What are we doing going over time? We've got more... Sorry about that. All right, well, we're not going to have a second service. We're just going to keep on going here. <laughs> All right, well, we're, we're going to, we'll kind of uh, continue on with uh, Isaiah and Luther. Now, as we especially get into, as we move forward into, um, into the, our, our Lent and our Easter, Isaiah just begins to blossom on us. It's just wondrous to see what it is that Isaiah has to say. Okay, receive the benediction of our Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with his favor and give you his peace. Amen.